there there was some midday activity for sure. I would say especially like early afternoon, like one, two o'clock. That was that got to be pretty hot and it didn't seem like we got as much. But even like eleven o'clock, ten thirty, eleven, like we were catching deer moving. Um there it was it was definitely on. I mean they were they were moving around. We talked to some guys that were like, Yeah, we were out hunting in like Arizona Game and Fish is running their helicopter around getting uh numbers like trying to count deer and uh somebody was like god why do they do that when people are out hunting well i mean it's the same the only way that they can really count them very well down there in the desert is to catch them up and moving so they were i mean they definitely like covered some ground The Rockcast is powered by Onyx Hunt, and for good reason. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app in the industry. Stay tuned for a Rockcast promo code. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode. I'm Sam Weaver, host of today's Tipsy Tuesday, a short segment covering rockslide.com tidbits, hunting news from across the West, with just a sprinkling of tips and tricks to keep you well-informed for your next adventure. First business of the day is the Wyoming elk deadline is January 31st. Non-residents now have to choose between three regions, the Western, Eastern, and Southern general tags. Be interesting to see how this change affects the draws. Arizona's deadline for elk and antelope is February 6th. Speaking of Arizona, this leads us right into today's show. Our guest is Jordan Budd. Jordan is no stranger to the Rockslide crowd, having been the original host of the Rockcast. She also is an amazing photographer and videographer. She has edited and produced multiple Rockslide featured short films. All right, everybody. Jordan just got back from over-the-counter Arizona deer hunting. She's going to walk us through the process a little bit and let us know uh, how the sunny state of Arizona was. So, did you guys do any good down there? Uh, the I had a buddy that I was with. That he, shot, he ended up shooting a buck, which... Seemed like really old buck, like he had a huge Roman nose and just had been fighting a ton. He actually broke off. It was either that morning that Cole shot him or maybe just like a couple days prior, he had broke one side completely off right down next to a skull plate. Not in the skull plate, but it completely broke off. But he had, there was still like blood around it. Like it was pretty gnarly. And uh, so they were fighting really hard down there with the rut. Yeah, it was, it was interesting. Is that the first time that you've been down there or you've been a few times or? Yeah, that, that was the first time that I've been down there. Um, my, my buddy did it last year. So he kind of had an idea of where he wanted to go. And he was like, dude, it's really fun. Like they're in the rut. You're hunting the desert. It's fairly warm. There's a lot of deer and you should come hang out and help me. So that's what I did. Yeah, I think this year, no doubt it was a great year to head south, try and break winter off a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we went right from, we got out of guiding, like the Nebraska season ended the end of December. So we basically went from there straight down to Arizona. Once we got there, the weather in Nebraska, it was negative 35, like a couple of of days ago, just like this really bad cold snap. It's not like that all the time, but yeah, negative 35. And I was like, well, it's 25 here. This seems cold. Yeah, there's a big difference. Of course, sleeping outside, even when it's 25, isn't exactly warm either. So no. No, exactly. 
All right. For those people that don't know, you know, when you go to apply in Arizona, you got to buy their license mm-hmm. um, and then you can apply for their draw tags. But by purchasing their license, it basically is 365 day license. Yep. And so you can go to these over the counter deer tags and the season is in uh, December and January, depending on the unit that you go to. And I think last year they went to a quota harvest for all the units. So I'm not I haven't been since then, so I'm not sure exactly how it works now. It's really interesting because I it confused me. You actually, like, when you get your tag, they have, like, a separate link set up that you go to, like, get the over-the-counter tag portion. And then you have to, of course, have your license. And the license is good for the year. The tag is good for the actual deer season, which includes December and January. So it's not like January is a new season. Um, And that was kind of interesting about the quotas. They have a list that you can, you like, click the link, it brings up kind of an Excel spreadsheet type deal, has all the units on it that are open to the over the counter. And it'll tell you some of them are separated into mule deer only. Some of them are like either species. So you can do coos deer or a mule deer. And basically every Wednesday, that updates. I think it's every Wednesday it updates. You check it and you check to make sure the quota is still open. So the the unit that we went to, actually by the time we got down there, we I think we got down there on like a Monday. We, we hunted Tuesday and then the season closed at sundown on Wednesday. So we only had two days in one season or in one unit, and then we just had the the unit closed, and we had to go to another unit. So it's kind of interesting, but it lets you hunt those deer like they were rutting. I mean, they were full on rut in January, but you can hunt them with a with a bow. So it's hard hunting. Um, the terrain's pretty rolly. It's pretty thick. Uh, at least where we were is kind of southern Arizona, and uh, it's tough, but it's fun. So it was a lot of fun. When I went down there, we used to go in December and then we'd stay over and go into January of the next year. So you'd have to buy two tags. So you would buy your new tag Mm -hmm. the next year in January, but it'd be good if you didn't tag out then in December. So we used to maximize like that, but I can see now with the new quota system. So you went down to a unit, the quota closed while you were hunting that unit and you had to move to the next unit. Yep. Plan B, I guess, and stayed there till basically you, it didn't close out. You just that your trip ended in that second unit you went to, right? Yeah. Yep. Our trip ended. So we got basically two day or two and a half days in one unit and then bounced over and we got about two days in the next unit. And just really like, it was a bit different. We went from like a, I would say a very much like a true desert unit, pretty flat, a little bit of rollies. Like they're not really big canyons, you know, they're just like little washes that I, you know, it's not much hundred foot on each side, maybe at most. And we went from that to kind of further north, a unit that just, the reason we picked it is it happened to be on the way home. I mean, it wasn't that far from where we already were. I was like, well, we might as well start migrating north because we got to head that way anyways. Yeah, that's what we just kind of, we picked a spot in that unit that kind of resembled where we were before and just started glassing. You really didn't have a plan B. You just kind of winged it after your unit closed that you had planned on hunting and, and just kind of headed out there. Yeah. You scouted it on the way and picked some spots you could glass from and then just, just went there and figured it out. Every day was a new adventure, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. What are some of the things that you found were most important there? Just good glass. I mean, glassing points, that's pretty much how you hunt. Yeah, glassing was huge. I don't really see how you do it any other way. There were some folks 
we hunted just on the weekdays, but on the weekend before we got there, Cole said that there were guys just like walking, a bunch of people just walking around everywhere. They would just walk a wash. And I think that's just like a thing down there. And I don't know with archery equipment what they think. There was uh, three dudes that had arrows knocked that were just like walking down, <laughs> walking down a little ridge with the arrow knocked. Hmm. So they were ready to rip. Um, but no, I don't think uh, that's maybe the best way to do it. Uh, glassing seemed to be our biggest deal. Like we would just first thing in the morning. Um, I mean, we would sit in some places all day or we might adjust a little bit just because like the sun would be setting in a different spot. And you don't want to be have the sun completely blasting you in the face. So we'd move around maybe a little bit in the middle of the day. But for the most part, we were sitting on a glassing point and we were glassing. And we would like go fairly slow with our binos, like had them on a tripod and you'd just like glass a spot and then you would pick up your chair or your glassing pad or whatever and you'd move to where you were looking a little bit different direction and then you do it all over again and you just kept doing that again where we were we were looking all around us like 360 i mean pretty much just you hunted them the same way you'd hunt a deer anywhere just the terrain was a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Were they active? I mean, just pretty much early and late, like you would think, running deer or some midday activity or just crazy? Yeah, there there was some midday activity for sure. I would say, especially like early afternoon, like one, two o'clock, that, that got to be pretty hot and it didn't seem like we got as much. But even like 11 o'clock, 10, 30, 11, like we were catching deer moving. Um, there it was, it was definitely on. I mean, they were, they were moving around. We talked to some guys that were like yeah we were out hunting in like arizona game and fish is running their helicopter around getting uh numbers like trying to count deer and uh somebody was like god why do they do that when people are out hunting well i mean it's the same the only way that they can really count them very well down there in the desert is to catch them up and moving so they were i mean they definitely like covered some ground there was a couple of deer that we would see we had seen previously but a lot of times like if you had a good buck like uh there was we saw probably we saw a few bucks and maybe touching 170 kind of up there so like good you know potential for an you know an over-the-counter archery type deal but if you didn't try to stalk those deer then like who knows where they're gonna be that evening that country they move so much it can trick you because the deer density for the most part is pretty low mm -hmm. but they tend to be in larger herds of does it, during the rut so you know when you find the deer you're kind of found them and when you don't just looking at the desert i guess yeah that's pretty much it, there's a lot of stuff down there that wanted to uh, poke you. There's like, we had to learn all the different kinds of uh, cactuses. So when we were trying to talk each other in on a stock, we could differentiate between one cactus to the next. And um, yeah, it was interesting. Well, I think you bring up a great point too, especially for somebody that's never been to the desert. I mean, just trying to lay your landmarks out of how you're going to try to navigate to where you found the deer from where you are can be super difficult, especially when you get down in there and everything looks the same. Like up here, there's places, well, up here, you know, in Idaho or like the regular mountain, there's usually pretty large defining land features. And even though maybe they don't seem big at the time, once you get down to the desert, they seem a lot bigger because when you're down there, there is like... There's nothing. I remember finding a couple of the first deer and just being like, telling them like, I don't know how I'm going to talk you into it. Like it's going to, we just like started 
going like way, you know, way far away, there'd be some mountain peaks like a long ways in the background. And you'd have to pick one of those and then work your way in closer. Just start big and work small. It was really tough. And then like to get to where you could really glass things well, you had to get pretty high on knobs. And some of those knobs, I mean, they're not really that tall anyways, but you get to the top to where you could glass all the way around you. You find a deer, you look at it. There was a, a stock that I had made um, on the last evening before that, that first unit closed. And looking at it, I could see where the deer were and there was a little saddle. And I was like, I can't screw it up. Like it's in the saddle. It's one of the most defining features we can see. Like I know exactly how I'm going to get in there. And man, like I got over to him and I was on the bottom of all that stuff. And I'm like, there's saddles literally everywhere. <laughs> like there's no, it was, yeah, it was, it was real, it's real difficult. I hunted Nevada this year and the vegetation was really short. And that was what I found. It was kind of like you couldn't see it. And then you would roll the next hill and you'd be like, that looks exactly like where I just came from. Like, where am I exactly? Yeah. When you look at it from the other side, you know, it, it looks vastly different than when you're on the same side of it. And you, you can only see a little bit every time you take a little look, it looks the same as where you just been. It's, it can get confusing really quick. It's definitely worth like if you're in that I mean, even it doesn't matter what kind of stock you're going on, but especially down there, taking some extra time to really like, okay, this is where they are. Like, where are my other landmarks? Like, where do I need to get to that I think would line up with, you know, where I need to stop to turn to go to them or like any landmarks? Like, make sure you have that burned into your brain before you go on the stock. Because if you just are like, all right, I think I know where he is, pick it up and take off, like you're going to get lost. Let me ask you this. Normally, how I would hunt during archery season, which would be early August, early September, you know, you'd wait till the deer bed. I would think in the rut, you can't really mess around too much. Once they're in one spot, you kind of got to make your move and and try and cover some ground and get there before they just get up and start moving somewhere else. Is that kind of how you worked out or you just kind of bedded them up or and hope they stayed there for a while or how how did that all work out? It was really hard to bed them up. Uh, there was some deer that we bedded, and this is like kind of a small sample since we were only there a, a couple of days. But there were some deer that we bedded up that, you know, by the time we saw them bed and I saw them, I saw them like go into this little, it was like some mesquites. And you, sh- I should have been able, I could have seen them coming out. As soon as we did that, then like I sent Cole on stock because I thought they were going to be there. They were just going to stick there, you know? Yeah. And they were really only bedded up for maybe 30 minutes and then they, they jumped up. They actually, they left and had gone, I mean, another 800 yards or so and went over a little ridge just to get on the shady side. I, I stalked a buck that was cruising and that was really hard because he doesn't really... You know, they are really just kind of randomly cruising. Like, they're kind of on a mission, but it's not, like, one direction. It seemed like when we found bucks that had does with them, that were, like, following a doe, the does had a mission, but it seemed like they were a little more linear. If you halfway saw which way they were going to go, then you could just, you know, take off and basically try to get in front of them. And honestly, like, a big key for down there, it's just the way it is down there, is, like, radios. The Onyx Hunt Elite subscription will provide way more value than the $100 annual fee will cost you, and that's before you apply the 20% Rockcast promo code. You'll use Onyx on every hunt, every planning session, and now save money with exclusive deals on gear from the industry's best. Onyx Elite also includes application and draw odds tools, educational resources for all species, exclusive mapping and scouting tools, and last but not least, access to nationwide coverage, and now Canada. Onyx Hunt Elite is trusted by millions. 
Onyx has also released new features to help make hunters more successful. Already known for nationwide public and private land ownership and being a fully functional GPS without service, Onyx Hunt has just released new aerial imagery options like Leaf Off, recent imagery updated every two weeks with historic look back, and imagery on demand. On top of that, Onyx is reinventing the trail camera market by syncing your Hunt app with multiple cell camera manufacturers and helping organize and analyze your photos. You can also now view your maps in Dash when driving to your next hunting location. These are just a few of the many updates Onyx has for this hunting season. So try Onyx Hunt for free for seven days or go to onyxmaps.com and use promo code ROCKCAST for 20% off your new Onyx Hunt membership. Everybody uses radios down there, it seems like. So having somebody that could at least be like, you're freaking two ridges over from where you're supposed to be because you got turned around, that was really nice too. You know, a lot of people confuse it depending on where you're from. You know, some states don't allow it. Arizona is one. Utah's allowed it in the past. I think I think they just outlawed it last year, but I don't know. So don't uh, take me 100%. But I agree with you. You got to take every advantage you can to try to communicate. Like we said, just trying to know where you are and where the deer are is a huge deal when you're on the stock. Yeah. Let me ask you this. So you didn't punch out. So now your tag's still good. You can come back. So you're going to try to go back in December maybe or, or not really? Yeah, I think I think we might. Um it depends a little bit on what the uh, the outfitting schedule is going to turn into here in uh, in in December. If we run to the end end of December, I won't have time. But yeah, I think I will try to go back. But yeah, that's one interesting thing about that tag is it's like when you know Cole had his tag last year, so he was hunting on that in December, and then he switched over to his new tag that he got for January. So it is it's kind of it's kind of funny how that, that thing works. But I think, uh, yeah, I'll try to go back. Yeah, I think it makes good sense to try to maximize. You know, like I said, if if you're applying in Arizona already to try and draw one of their limited entry tags, it makes good sense to try and get over and try your hand at the over-the-counter archery. And like we talked about, you can get there in December, use that year's tag, hunt for whatever, four or five days, then roll straight into January, hunt another four or five days, and then come back again if you have to. So yeah, just kind of cycles there. Those tags do sell out too. Oh yeah, they capped it. Yep, they're capped. So you gotta, there's like a little more planning than maybe there used to be. So you gotta keep that in mind. But I got a tag. Mine was kind of a last minute impulse buy, if I'm being honest. It was kind of like, a, hey, I got this tag. You should come down here and go with me. And so I hopped online and got one at the last second. But and for us, like being able to hunt in January like that, it there's a lot of like a couple businesses that everything happens in September to December. <laughs> and so to have something like in January that you can, you know, tap after everything's done and uh Right. Hunt hunt for other people is fun, but hunt for yourself is mm-hmm. is different. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, just to be clear too, I we didn't really talk about. It. I guess we should have maybe started out the show, but you went down there and you chased mule deer on the same archery tag. You can uh, chase the uh, coos deer, so that's a whole different, separate yep. section within the boundaries and when the unit closes, different. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And those those units that do have both coos deer and mule deer, they are separated from most of what I saw on the quota sheet. Uh, they do separate those, so some tags were closed, some units were closed to mule deer, and they were still open for coos deer so kind of just depends what you want to do there but uh yeah we were mostly from mule deer we saw a couple coos deer those little things are kind of fun but i uh really like mule deer so my hunt partner he's also from the midwest hunts some big whitetails he's he's not a coos deer fan he doesn't want to chase a little little whitetail so so i think it is kind of what you're used to 
All right. You got any other equipment must haves? Do you take your trailer down there? Is that where you guys stayed in your trailer? You guys stay in a hotel or how'd that all work out? Yeah, we stayed in a hotel this year. Um, definitely cost more than if we just would have taken our trailer, but we had a logistical thing going on. Our trailer was still in Idaho, but our side-by-side, which I really wanted to have a side-by-side down there, that's something that I think... Um, that's a huge deal. There's just side-by-side roads everywhere, and that's really rough country. So if you're going down and you don't have one, I think there's places you could rent one. And honestly, it might not be a bad idea because it was really nice to be able to um, pull out, dump side-by-side off. But yeah, we had a little bit of a logistical deal going and couldn't quite get the trailer and the side-by-side down there. So I chose to bring the Can-Am instead. Um, so we stayed in a hotel and equipment wise, and I would just say, get yourself a good set of tripod legs and a head that you really like. And I don't think it matters if you have eight power binoculars or if you do have some 15s, like being able to throw those on a tripod and get them steady is really nice. And then, um, a stool, like we use those, the Hillsound BTR, I think is what they're called. They're like little collapsible, like sitting stools. It gets you just elevated with all that there's just brush and stuff everywhere down there so when you're glassing it gets you just a little bit elevated up above that stuff it's really helpful um and then we use those helinox chairs for it too yeah i like the glass out of my helinox chair a lot it just mm-hmm. especially something like that where you're basically just committed to glassing all day if you have to so yeah for sure being comfortable is number one and number two, like you talked about, I just want to circle back. You glass the area that you're looking for. You may not see a deer. You get up, you move a little bit and just changes your perspective just a little bit. And you glass the same area. Yeah. And when that happens and the sun moves just a little bit, you it's like a whole whole new world. You're picking up a, a ear or flick of a tail or something that you didn't see the first time. So mm-hmm. yeah, for sure. For people that haven't glassed a lot, you know, you have to, I don't know, glassing is is all mental game. So, you know, you got to be your own hype man while you're sitting there and you're not seeing nothing. You got to be like, you know, it's kind of like fishing. You got to keep casting and be like, yeah, this is going to be the one. I'm going to catch the fish this time and just keep grinding away at it. Yeah, I think that's something that like I literally even sometimes when I'm like, oh, this doesn't seem like the deer moving or, you know, it's I don't have a, maybe a lot of confidence in it that day for some reason. I always have this mental image of my in my mind of like I'm going to move my glass over just a little bit and the buck's going to be standing right there. And that's just because it's happened like that a bunch of times. So if you can just like keep that in your mind and just keep glassing like you'll you'll pick up deer. It's it's all a persistence thing. For me, I, I like to think about what I think a, a ear of the deer is going to look like or just an antler tip or something. You know, I can get caught up in trying to yeah. find the whole deer mm-hmm. and just, you know, glass really fast and then be frustrated that I'm not seeing anything. also found even looking at does and getting an idea of how big they should be, their proportion to the terrain. Yeah, that's huge. Really helps me out when I'm trying to pick that apart. Then I know what size ear I'm looking for, what size the deer should be. Yeah, yeah. We we got up there that first evening and I, I was like, I feel like I just need to see one so I know what I'm looking for. Because <laughs> sometimes you like, you know, you'll be up in the mountains and you'll finally find a deer and you're just like, no wonder I've been missing them because they're a mile over there. In a related topic, I was hunting with a guy, mm-hmm. uh, elk hunting, and he was like, that's got to be an elk over there. No way, dude. Look how big that would have to be for that to be an elk. Yeah. like. Like, it looks like an elk. I mean, the coloring was perfect, but it was 
a giant rock, you know, I was like, that thing would have to weigh 3000 pounds to have to be an elk. So just helps you to have a little bit of perspective. For sure. I was like here anyways, I always like to look at uh, like little tree, like trees around me and then look at trees where I'm looking and be like, how big around is that thing? Like, does oh, it, yeah. do they look tiny? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good idea. I never thought about it really that way. It helps you get perspective when you haven't seen any deer using the, the tree itself. Mm-hmm. Nice. I'm glad uh, you got to find a little sunshine. I'm excited to see what you got going on this year. I'm sure we'll see you at some of these shows coming up. Um, yep. Anything you want to close out with? Man, I don't really think so. I started doing a little podcasting of my own, I'm calling it Jordan's Toolkit, but I'm just doing some random stuff, mostly using it to just recap things, just like this Arizona hunt that we went on, like dive a little more into detail on the gear I used and a little more uh, like a day-by-day, play-by-play type of deal. But um, yeah, that's pretty much what I've got going on. Yeah, I've been following Jordan's podcast, The Toolbox there, and on our last, I don't know if it was your last episode, maybe the episode before, um, you basically kind of just closed out your guiding season, what happened. You had your guide, uh, yeah. Cole up there, and, and Leah was on, and, and you guys just kind of walked us through how the whole season played out, and you know there was a lot of good tidbits in there. Yeah, I've been super enjoying the yeah. the Toolbox. I hope you get a few more episodes out. I know you've been super busy. It's it's kind of been on the back burner for a minute. Yeah, it is, and man, I mean, you know, yeah, you know how it is. It's, it's it's not uh, as easy coming up with all this stuff as it seems. I'm I'm glad that you started the rockcast. I learned a lot from you, and yeah, it's it's a lot harder than I ever thought it was going to be. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's cra- it's crazy. I'm glad to see you doing it. You're still uh, working on photography. Where can people uh, check you out there on Instagram? Check out some of your pictures and whatnot. Uh, just at Jordan Jordan with a n j o r d a n dot b u d d. We'll get you there. Yeah, and I'm doing doing some stuff with meat eater, doing some stuff with uh, like Sig Sour. I don't know. I've just got a few things going on with uh, the podcast and some of my other partnerships. So you you never know. I don't really know what <laughs> I have planned this year yet. Nice. Well, I hope it shakes out good. Maybe we can have you back. We'll talk a little bit about cameras, choosing then how you set your photo up. You know, that's something that I really struggle with and yeah. you're pretty damn good at it. So I appreciate you making some time. Oh, I appreciate it. Well, yeah. And uh, we'll catch up with you later. For sure. Thanks, Jordan. You pursue them, you cherish them, and now it's time to protect them. This is the Mule Deer Foundation. Our mission is the conservation of mule deer, black-tailed deer, and their habitats, the heart and soul of the West. Join the herd today and help us preserve the legacy of these majestic creatures for generations to come. Your membership supports essential conservation projects, research initiatives, and educational programs that secure a future for mule deer and black-tailed deer. Our deer our heritage, our responsibility. Don't just witness their journey, be a part of it. Join the herd. Together, we can make a difference. Visit muledeer.org today. Thanks, Sam. All right, moving on to reviews. Today we have Shane Nelson. He's going to give us his review of the new Gunworks Rivik Acra RS25i. Welcome to the show, Shane. How's it going, Sam? Pretty good. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about this rifle scope? Well, obviously a very well thought out scope built by people that hunt. Uh, a lot of cool little tricks and things, but I guess to tell the tape, it's a uh, 5 to 25 magnification range, 50 millimeter objective, 30 millimeter main tube, capped windage, got a big, bold elevation turret with a lot of grip, very tactile clicks, pretty easy to use. I didn't 
one thing I really liked was big numbers on the turrets. For us old guys, that's a big plus. Really easy to see the, the numbers. What's this thing weighing in at? 36 ounces. It's a big boy? It's chunky, for sure. It's only like 14 and a quarter inches long, but it's got plenty of real estate for mounting. I've got it currently on a long action, lone peak, and fits really well. So there's plenty of tube there. Radicals, pretty plain. I mean, they call it the ultimate first focal plane hunting radical, which is a pretty bold statement. But I like it because it's plain. It's clean. Got marks every minute. Crosshair, just a floating plus sign in there. It's two minutes high and two minutes wide. Every fourth minute is marked on the vertical wire or the horizontal wire, sorry, uh, out to 16. And then it's got those cute little wind icons on the ends. I'm not a huge fan, but anyway, they're there. The horizontal post is a, just a tapered post, kind of reminiscent of the old Weaver K4. Oh, nice. It's uh, very usable at low power. I mean, it gets you right in the middle, and I haven't shot it at big game, so I, I'm just assuming, but it's very easy to see, even on 5. 25 a lot. I shot it mostly in the 10 to 12, maybe even 15 power range just to make spotting shots easier and getting back on target. Yeah, and it has illuminated uh, reticle also, right? It is illuminated. It's just on the focus knob, you know, the parallax knob on the left side. The center of that is the illumination button. Short press turns it on and returns you to wherever it was when you shut it off. Then each short press after it's on will take you up to max, you know, up to number 10. And then turn around and each short press will take you back down to the bottom. And then a long press shuts it off. Right. So every time you turn it on, it just uh, goes back to its last setting. Returns to where you left it. Yeah. And then you work it all the way to its brightest setting, then back down to the to the lowest. Correct. Uh, one thing, the each rev on the elevation turret, 25 minutes. It'd be super easy to add a custom cut turret for your particular load if you're into that. I prefer just the MOA or Mills, but Mills are coming this year, they say. So currently the, the Rivik's only offered in MOA? Yes. Yep. One of the other features that we didn't quite hit on yet is mounting that thing up. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how they mark the tube? Yeah, forward of the turret, there's two horizontal lines in the center of the tube. I guess by design land right between the, the gap in your front ring. Makes it really easy to level things up. Does It levels up very nicely. It's quick and easy and pretty reliable. Once you got it mounted, then you took it out and you shot a little bit, you tested it, kind of walk us through the process you did there. I just uh, mounted it in some Seekin slash Vortex rings, four screw rings, uh, 25 inch pounds of dry per form specification and what uh, Gunworks recommends. I didn't bore sight it. I just shot it at 25 and walked it in. Only took a few shots. Everything moved the way it should. Lined up really nice. You know, like I said, zeroed super easy. And then, you know, after I got it kind of zeroed to my ability, I'll never really be a great shooter. But anyway, shot a group or two and then took it out. You know, every few shots I'd take, wind it up 8, 10, 12 minutes, bring it back and then shoot the same target and seem to stack the bullets in the same place. Always acted like it wanted to return to zero pretty well. After that, I, you know, just reset zero, which is super easy. It's got a little screw, a top screw. You just pick up the numbered section of the turret and reset it to zero. The zero stop, you have to completely disassemble that top stack. Uh, three little set screws inside, screw the little collar down. It's a good, hard zero stop, very easy to set. No gymnastics, no nonsense, just really straightforward, really easy. 
Screws are a little small, hard to see. I'm pretty sure I could twist them off or break the, the little Allen wrench, but just a minor bitch. After that, I set up just a little square target with four dots on a piece of paper, four by five square. Started at the bottom left target, shot one shot, dialed it up four minutes, shot, dialed right four minutes, shot around, brought it back two zero and shot again. All tracked as I would expect and within my abilities. After that, I took it out, you know, dialed it up. I think I added eight or 10 minutes, shot a few shots, came back to that same target, started at the bottom right and went around backwards, all the way around back to zero. And through all that nonsense, it tracked very well. All the bullets landed where they should have, seemed to work very well, you know, in that brief test. Right. So you shot the square. It shot where you thought it was going to. Uh, you reversed the square after running a few more up and down out to elevation and reverse square shot it. And they all shot where you thought they should. Yep. And then you shot a tall test target. Did a tall target. Maybe didn't have the shooting position quite as solid as I should have. It looks like it drifts to the right a bit. But as far as elevation adjustments, everything tracked. All the bullets were up and back were where they should have been. Then number 10 was right on the zero target. You adjusted on the tall target test. You have five MOA. You walked her all the way down to 20, then all the way back up. Right. All right. I guess all the question uh, listeners want to hear, did you throw it on the ground and try and break it? I did. I did. As much as my heart would stand. <laughs> all up, the rifle's 14 pounds. I held it at 24 inches, just knee height, and dropped it on a thin shooting mat that was on some DG-type gravel ground. Pretty hard pack. Shot after that drop, the bullet impacted three minutes low and about one minute right. That was, I dropped it on the left side, picked it up, dropped it on the right side from the same height, and shot again. The bullet landed right next to the point of aim, about one minute right right so it shifted a little bit on the first drop seems like the second drop might have uh brought it back to where it should be reset it back to almost back to zero nice uh, i talked to form after that i sent him the pictures and discussed it with him he seemed to think it was something in the scope the erector or something but without knowing we don't know the action screws on the rifle were torqued to 50 pounds the base screws were torqued to 50 pounds i think everything was tight but again i didn't have the heart to just drop it repeatedly and beat it into the ground so as i i shot it after i shot five shots right after that on a different target first shot was out inch and a half second one was touching the target and the next three were in the target i dialed another i don't know seven or eight minutes shot five at 600 and then came back to that same target and shot five more and they were all inside the one inch dot yeah all right i guess the question is you have the confidence in the scope you still have it mounted up still using it to this day yeah, I do. And every time I go somewhere, I'll, I'll shoot it. Uh, seems to be holding zero very well. Still work. Dials the way I expect it to. So far, it's a good scope, but it's only had a little bit of use. I, I w can't and will not profess to the, the uh, durability of it, but everything works. Got a lot of good features. Obviously designed by people that know what they're doing and know what they want. Right. And you, you have about 500 rounds shot through this? 500-ish so far, yeah. All right, Shane, I appreciate it. If anybody has any uh, further questions, there's a write-up on the homepage. I'll have it linked in the show notes. And if they want to get a hold of you, Shane, and ask you a few questions, where can they find you at? Yeah, message me there on Rockslide or ESO, TWO, and the number two on Instagram. All right, there you have it. All right, thanks. We'll catch up with you later, Shane. Hey, thanks, Sam. See you. On to the Conservation Minute. I just want to give another shout-out for Coloradans for Responsible Wildlife Management. 
you've never heard of the CRWM group, please go listen to Travis Hobbs and Don Gates discuss Combat Colorado's newest ballot initiative. Let's move on to how for wildlife and Washington state as they push towards a constitutional state amendment to protect their hunting and fishing rights. A group of bipartisan Washington state senators have proposed Senate Joint Resolution 8208, aiming to enshrine hunting and fishing as constitutional rights. The resolution seeks to create an inevitable right to forage, hunt, fish, trap, and harvest wildlife and fish. To proceed, it requires an approval by two-thirds of both the Senate and the House, and a simple majority vote in a statewide election. Key points for the proposal include... 8208 is spearheaded by Senator Wagner and co-sponsored by a mix of both Republican and Democrat senators. Bill is set to begin with a hearing and recommendation on January 22nd from the State Agriculture, Water, National Resources, and Parks Committee. A 2022 survey indicated strong public support for legal regulated hunting in Washington state. This resolution is introduced amidst discussions on a new conservation policy by the Washington Fish and Wildlife Commission. This policy aims to guide decisions related to managing fish, wildlife, and ecosystems. However, it has faced criticisms for potentially excluding and dividing its stakeholders into wildlife conservation. Supporters of 8208 argue that hunting and fishing are integral to the state's heritage and should be preserved. They emphasize that the role of sustainable use in wildlife conservation and the contributors of hunters and anglers to the conservation efforts. For those interested in supporting this initiative, engagement can include staying informed about the progress of 8208, participating in public comment opportunities, and contacting local representatives to express support. I'll have a link in the show notes. This is the final reminder to vote on your favorite mule deer, sheep, and whitetail photo in the 2023 Rockslide Best of Photo Contest. Head on over to rockslide.com, that's R-O-K-S-L-I-D-E.com, Go to the hunting forums, go to the species you wish to vote on, and they're sticky at the top of the forum. In closing, I encourage anyone who missed last week's Rockstaff Favorite Gear podcast to check it out. With over 20 mini interviews about what gear worked and what gear didn't, it's a do-not-miss episode. Check out the link in the show notes. Until next time, this has been Sam Weaver. <laughs>